Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Writer and journalist Amanda Ripley wrote recently in the Washington Post, I have a secret. I kept it hidden for longer than I care to admit. It felt unprofessional, vaguely shameful. It wasn't who I wanted to be, but here it is. I've been actively avoiding the news for years. Her Washington Post op-ed piece is titled, I Stopped Reading the News. Is the problem me or the product? Amanda Ripley is New York Times bestselling author and investigative journalist. Her books include High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out, The Smartest Kids in the World and How They Got That Way, and The Unthinkable, Who Survives When Disaster Strikes and Why. She writes for The Atlantic, Washington Post, Politico, and other outlets. She hosts the Slate podcast, How To. Previously, she spent a decade writing about human behavior for Time magazine in New York, Washington, and Paris. Amanda Ripley, uh, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Before we get into this, uh, I want to make reference to a recent episode in your podcast where you interviewed Utah Governor Spencer Cox. um, Oh, yeah. uh, Along with Vermont State Senator uh, Becca Bellant. Um, So uh, on Staying Above the Fray, the actual title is, uh, is, I can't bring myself to say it, but (laughs) How to Run for Office Without Being a Terrible Person. Let's put it that way. Um, okay. <laughs> so what what what, um, what are the the top outtakes from that conversation, if you remember? It was that was a really fun and interesting and actually hopeful conversation. Speaking of hope, which I'm sure we'll probably do later in this conversation, but uh, you know, I wanted to do a show. The, the, the how-to show is kind of unusual. We try to bring on people who are struggling with a problem, and then people who have been through the woods and to the other side on that same problem. So in this case, we had um, State Senator Becca Ballant from Vermont, who's a Democrat running for congressional office and trying very hard to be true to her values and not sell out and not be a jerk and not uh, make other people um, enraged. And, you know, she's really trying to get things done. And meanwhile, uh, that's why we also brought on Governor Cox, who is known as someone who has doesn't always take the bait, right, who has worked to um to try to be decent in politics and no one is perfect at this right but we thought that would be an interesting conversation how do you do this um and they both had really good ideas um but i was struck governor cox in particular said that while he used to be able to do this on twitter it's gotten harder and harder and it sounded to me like he's now kind of had to distance himself a bit from from social media as as many of us have yeah, and it seems like and there are examples where, you know, you try to be above the fray and you lose the election, right? So th- these are th- <laughs> right. th- these these examples stand out. I'm sure that's why you had them on. Um, but what do they say about about the uh, intersection of those two things? You, you want as a politician, you want to get elected, right? Uh, you want to do what works, mm-hmm. but you want to do it the right way. Absolutely. That's the tension, right? And what the reason I wanted to have both of them on is that so far they are succeeding. Um, so, you know, we'll see what happened with uh, Senator Ballant's race. But so far, she's doing very well, despite not having the wind at her back that other candidates have had. And people seem to appreciate that she is doing it differently. Right. And, and you know, by the way, that doesn't mean she doesn't fight for things she believes in. Um, I think we've got this kind of false binary, right, in politics, where we think you either have to have bipartisan harmony, everybody gets along all the time, um, or uh, what we've got. And those those are not the only two options, right? So she is able to fight for things. She has strong opinions. She's the first um, openly gay 
uh, woman to be president of the Vermont State Senate. Uh, but she also sees the humanity in everyone and tries very hard to to live her values and be curious and listen to people she disagrees with. Well, let's jump into uh, this this article. You've been working on this, you say, for uh, you know a year or something. Is this heading toward a book? This uh, this uh, fixing the news. I don't know. I mean, I think mm-hmm. for me, it just came from a very personal place of wanting to find a news source that I couldn't seem to find. And then, you know, for a long time, I thought it was, you know, there was just something wrong with me. Um, and I've been hearing from a lot of reporters in the last couple of weeks since this piece came out who felt the same way, you know, like, why couldn't they read the news the way they once did? Um, in the past, I used to read, you know, several newspapers a day, and I really enjoyed it. I mean, I found that it made me more curious, not less. And now the opposite seems to be true some of the time. Uh, so eventually, you know, I decided to kind of go out and do the reporting, right? Do the thing, the one thing I know how to do and interview people who understand what humans need to thrive in the modern world and make good decisions without being paralyzed by despair and hopelessness. So that meant, you know, everything, everyone from uh, people who specialize in helping physicians communicate bad news to um, researchers who understand how humans process risk, um, all kinds of psychologists and uh, conflict mediators and trying to understand if they were to design the news for human consumption, you know, what would it look like and how would it be different based on everything we now know about human behavior and also based on the fact that the news is now omnipresent, right? Like it's sort of aerosolized. It's everywhere. It's hard to escape it. So you say up until you had your epiphany, I guess you, you uh, like many of us, you, you, especially you as a journalist, right? You felt like it's your duty to be informed, right? As a journalist, as a, as a citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I guess up until that point, up until things started to change, you say you, you, you loved it. What... Um, what changed? You, you, I think you, you found uh, you, you'd read the news and you get depressed, I guess. Yeah, and it was sort of a creeping, slow, gradual realization. But I found that, you know, a couple things changed. First of all, you know, I'm sure I changed. I got older. I also was no longer doing conceit reporting. So I didn't need to know every twist and turn of every story. But I did find that I would do my usual thing, you know, listen to the radio and listen to news on the radio as I got ready and I read the news before what, while I was eating breakfast. And by the time I was done, it just, I just sort of felt deflated, you know, like I, I needed to go do some writing about difficult things, big problems in our society. And it was just hard to get motivated. So then I pushed all of my news consumption till the afternoon, uh, thinking that, you know, by then, you know, all hope was lost and I could, I could, I could bear all of these disturbing stories. And then, you know, it was the evening, you know, I kept trying different things. I I cut out TV news altogether, um, which I would recommend for most people, um, because it's just not, it's just a very emotional medium that isn't necessarily particularly helpful. Lots of research on that. But still, that I still found like, I didn't like, I didn't like the way I felt, even if I waited until after dark, uh, like a vampire to consume any news. And it seemed like there had to be a better way. This is all resonating with me, um, and, I, and you, we'll get into the how you you, uh, you discovered that others ha- ha- held this uh, deep dark secret as well, right? Um, 
But but the, this resonates. You would you'd give yourself stern lectures. You say this is real life. Real life's yeah. depressing. I got to take my medicine. Essentially, is what you're telling yourself. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, because it was like you know, I always covered hard things. I always covered terrorism and disasters and crime, and now I cover conflict, and so it just felt um, like you know, what was my problem? I mean, you know, life is hard. Suck it up, right? And anyone who's ever been told to suck it up, even if it's by themselves, uh, probably knows how 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 unhelpful that actually is right, in the long yes. term. So it didn't work for me either. <laughs> That's true. Uh, so the result is, and I, uh, you know, I think a lot of people in our audience are probably nodding their heads. Uh, so paralysis, right, and and despair. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it is important to be informed. I think we can all agree on that. You know, you need to make decisions in your life for your family, for your community. You need to make, you need to vote, right? You need to do things to be a good citizen and good member of your community. But what I found was a lot of times I was reading stories and just being paralyzed by despair. So I wasn't actually taking any action. In fact, I was probably taking less action than if I hadn't been reading the news. So that felt like it was counterproductive in a way that um, is good for no one, really. So you went to a therapist. And uh, what did she tell you? You know, she told me to stop reading the news. Uh-huh. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, that's um, that's a common theme that you'll hear in a lot of therapists' offices these days. Um, there's actually something called headline stress disorder um, that psychologists and, and therapists have been talking about at their own conferences and amongst themselves. You know, how do you learn about the pandemic or about inflation or about climate change and not feel so uh, depressed that you either just tune it out or just tell yourself it's not true and live in denial or um, just really truly be immobilized by, by sadness and fear. Hmm. But it, I mean, there's resistance, right? And I'm sure you resisted this for, for a while, because as you write, quitting the news felt like quitting the world. Right. So that wasn't an option. I just didn't want to totally bury my head in the sand. I don't think, I mean, most people don't want to bury their heads in the sand. Some people do. Right. But I think, most people want to know what's going on in the world and want to feel like they're, they're, you know, educated and informed and curious. Um, so I, I don't think that that should be uh, the only option. I do think there are other options and certainly it's incumbent on us as journalists to do a better job. And I, I now am actually quite confident that it can be done, but uh, it's taken me a while to, to get there. <laughs> So you had a very important thing happen to you. You discovered, uh, especially among journalists, this must be a, a special conflict because you're, you know, you're producing the news, so you you should consume it as well, feel a responsibility, right? You you talked to a friend of yours who said, uh, yeah, I've, I have the same feelings. Yeah, yeah. One day a journalist friend of mine confided that she was avoiding the news too. Um, and so at first I felt better, like, oh, okay, I'm not alone. And then I heard it from another journalist and another uh, most were women, I noticed, although not all. And I started to feel a little freaked out by it. Like, wh- why aren't we talking about this publicly? You know, if um, if the thing that we're literally, you know, sacrificing a lot of our time with our families um, to create, if we're blood, sweat, and tears, literally, for journalists, especially journalists uh, in conflict zones, if, if this thing is... is is making us um, want to avoid it, even us, then something's wrong, you know? So 
um, the, the sort of final realization was when there's a uh, Reuters Institute does a big poll every um, year or two, and, and they actually just did one. It's, it's a large sample size around the world, and they found that the U.S. has one of the highest news avoidance rates in the world. About four in 10 Americans are sometimes or often avoiding contact with the news, which is a rate higher than at least 30 other countries. So at that point, I was like, OK, um, that, that translates out to like roughly 100 million American adults. And we can't all be we can't all be wrong. Mm. Uh, and so that that would lead you toward one side of this uh, binary that you ask at the beginning. In fact, fact the uh, you know the headline. I don't know if you wrote the headline, but it's it's apt. Uh, is the problem me or the product? And as you say, 100 million Americans <laughs> have the same feeling. Uh, maybe there's a problem with the product. Um, <laughs> so why are people avoiding the news? Well, in that same study by the Reuters Institute, uh, people were pretty clear about it. They said it felt repetitive, dispiriting. They felt it was of dubious credibility. Uh, it left them feeling powerless. So, you know, they had a lot of reasons. Not everybody has the same reasons, uh, particularly uh, people on the right tend to distrust mainstream news organizations. So that would be their reason. Uh, but interestingly, across the globe, women were consistently a little more likely than men to be avoiding the news, or or at least to admit to avoiding the news, um, it wasn't a huge difference, but it was it was surprising to me that it was consistent all around the world. And you know, honestly, we can as journalists, you know, we used to I used to just kind of dismiss this, like oh, people want to be you know ignorant, that's fine, they can't handle it, get out of the kitchen, that kind of thinking. And there's a sort of like macho aloofness that sometimes happens amongst journalists, and I'm not proud of it, but I think that's how I looked at it then. But now, you know, if you look at the research, they're not wrong. I mean, the more news we consume about, say, mass casualty events like shootings, the more we suffer from symptoms of anxiety, right? And the more political news we ingest, the more we, mistakes we make about each other. Um, so if the goal of this whole enterprise of journalism is to inform people, you know, where is the evidence it's working? Well, let's take a break. We'll come back. We'll, uh, we'll address that. Um, you know, there's something wrong with the news, but what is it? And then how to, you know, how to make positive changes. We're talking with Amanda Ripley. She's a writer and journalist. You can find her at AmandaRipley.com. And uh, she wrote an op-ed piece in the Washington Post recently. Uh, the, the piece's title is Stop Reading the News. Is the Problem Me or the Product? We'll have more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We have writer and journalist Amanda Ripley wrote an op-ed piece recently in the Washington Post titled, I Stopped Reading the News, Is the Problem Me or the Product? Amanda Ripley is the New York Times bestselling author, investigative journalist. Her books include High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How to Get Out, Smartest Kids in the World, How They Got That Way, and The Unthinkable, Who Survives When Disaster Strikes and Why. Uh, so, so we're talking about uh, the fact that this uh, Reuters Institute uh, survey uh, shows that about 40% of Americans sometimes or often avoid contact with the news. That's a higher rate than at least 30 other countries. So there's a problem there somewhere. Um, so there's some theories, right? You, you write about this in your piece. Uh, some people say that uh, there's a problem with bias. Others say that uh, it's the business model. Negativity is what sells, and so that's why we're flooded with negativity. Uh, what do you say? 
Well, I think those two things are definitely true, but I think there's been less attention to the sort of conventions and traditions of journalism and also the way that ego uh, drives decisions that we make about what to cover and um, sometimes a hyper fixation on our competition. You know, I think there's there's other things that matter that we should talk more about. And one of those things, honestly, is that most reporters I know just don't know the effect that the news is having on people and aren't aware that, you know, we know pretty clearly at this point that human beings need hope to get up in the morning. They need a sense of agency um, in order to convert anger into action. Um, there are things that we need the way we need, you know, food. And I don't think that traditionally journalism figured that into um, how we structure stories, right? We, we know you need intrigue, right? And conflict and sometimes fear, right? We know there's certain things we do, we do understand about human psychology. But I think for me, I hadn't fully understood that, you know, just bombarding people with alarming information is, is actually not going to lead to change in quite the contrary. It is going to lead to um, people tuning you out and to sometimes learned helplessness. Uh, they're in that. That's the danger, right? You you uh, want to get away from uh, something negative, but you get too far away, then yeah, learned helplessness, and that's we don't want. You know, forty percent of us or hundred percent of us doing that. Um, yeah. So th- this struck me. <laughs> this is quite the sentence. Today's news, even high quality print news, is not designed for humans. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Well. You know, I actually, you know who put this really well is Krista Tippett, who's a, a journalist and hosts um, the radio show On Being. She said, I don't actually think we're equipped physiologically or mentally to be delivered catastrophic and confusing news and pictures 24-7. And then she said, we are analog creatures in a digital world. And I think that that nicely captures uh, the way in which the technology has outpaced the psychology, right? Like we, we've changed how we deliver the news and how we uh, produce the news in a lot of ways because of technology and because of competitive pressures. But I don't think we've evolved do, to think about how that's affecting human beings, right? Um, you know, we didn't used to know about horrible things happening thousands or even hundreds of miles away. And we certainly didn't know about them at every moment of the day, right? We didn't carry them around in our pockets. We didn't encounter them at the dentist, in the waiting room, in the elevator. Uh, so so I think some things have changed, and we're just, we need to evolve how we practice journalism to catch up with that. So you mentioned this earlier in the hour. Um, you, you spent the past year trying to figure out what news designed for humans might look like. Um, and you mentioned you, uh, you know, you put on your investigative journalist hat and went out um and you interviewed behavioral scientists and psychologists this one struck me i want to have you maybe tell me a little about the about this you interviewed physicians who specialize in communicating bad news to patients i i can see i can see an outline of how that might apply here but uh, uh tell me yeah and i should point out they're not good at it i mean it's, i'm not suggesting that like you know <laughs> physicians have figured this out and journalists are way behind um, but there are physicians who have worked very hard on this and researchers who are good, who have gotten much better at this, right? 
So it's a good way, I think, for journalists to learn from um, from an analogy. So typically, um, doctors have if they are if they get training, which most of them don't, in how to deliver bad news. Um, it's important to do it gradually, right? To not just slam hit someone with the worst possible news of their lives, right? It's important to answer all of their questions, to listen to what they're asking you, to make yourself available for like, you know, more follow-up as they process the news. So when we think about what would that look like for humans, and, and by the way, this, this matters, sorry, for journalism, this matters because we know that in the past, uh, a, a significant percentage of people would be told that they have, you know, a terminal condition and go home and not believe it. Right. And just kind of carry on. Uh, So when people if they are told bad news in ways that they can't process, then they will just tune out, whether it's medical news or health news or or news news. So how would that apply to journalism? Well, one way I think it might apply is, um, you know, to listen more to our audiences. Like, what do you want to know about this problem? How can we help you? How can we be of service, right? Ask constantly, what do you wish we were covering more? What's a question you have about your city or your state that we could help you answer? And there are, by the way, there are some individual outlets and programs doing this. Um, but I think it should be sort of part of the DNA of journalism, part of the default operating system, as opposed to, um, you know, sort of a wacky um, you know, program that, you know, most people in the editorial staff don't pay attention to. So so that would be one way to kind of continually remain in relationship with your audience, to do a story on some terrible thing that happened in the town, but then go back, right, three months later or six months later. So it's a relationship and, and not just a, um, doesn't feel quite so extractive. Um, you mentioned uh, three things, three ingredients we are missing from the news. I, I want to get into those, but before we do that, I want to have you tell me a little bit about you, uh, the psychologists that you talk to who've been treating patients, and you mentioned this, uh, there's an actual thing called headline stress disorder. What, what kinds of things are they doing to help people with that? Well, I think they, too, are trying to figure it out. But uh, we know that particularly around climate change and the pandemic, uh, but also um, the election, politics, there is just a big surge in people really struggling to find a way to feel like they could make a difference, like it was worth going to work or to school in the morning. You see this uh, most acutely maybe among young people with higher rates of anxiety and depression. So it's been a struggle to help, um, I think, to help people figure out, right, when are we catastrophizing, right, catastrophizing, like sort of going to the worst possible scenario? When are we sort of um, ruminating on terrible things that might happen? Um, those are things that, you know, psychologists have been treating humans for for a very long time. But often I find that I can find rumination and catastrophizing in the newspaper, right? So, so the, like stories that are about terrible things that might happen, even if they just as easily might not, right? Um, when COVID cases would go down or some small glimmer of hope would appear, say with vaccines working, I, in some news outlets, I didn't get the sense that there was any kind of moment of celebration in the headlines, right? It was just like, you know, headlines about how experts warn not to get complacent, right? As opposed to, you know, 
uh, country breathes sigh of relief as COVID cases finally slow, right? Uh, like, so the framing of it, even if, you know, you might read the story and deep down in the story, there would be more context. It, it wasn't framed that way. And so that's the kind of thing that we have to be very careful about as individuals, but also in how we structure the news. Are we catastrophizing? Are we ruminating? Um, are, are we acting as if we have an anxiety disorder and, and worrying about things to such a degree that, that it interferes with functioning? If you just joined us, you're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have with us a journalist and writer Amanda Ripley. Her recent uh, op-ed piece in the Washington Post is titled, I Stopped Reading the News, Is the Problem Me or the Product? And you're welcome to get your uh, thoughts to us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. You can call us at 800-826-1495. Tell us about your experience with the news, 800-826-1495. So I I mentioned you mentioned uh, three simple ingredients missing from the news. We can start there, right? First, you say we need hope. And you talk to David uh, Bornstein, co-founder of the nonprofit uh, Solutions Journalism Network. Um, by the way, uh, Utah Public Radio is participating in a, an initiative from uh, Solutions Journalism Network, Great Salt Lake Collaborative, um, with, oh, cool. with some pr- principles. Like, you know, that don't just uh, talk about the problem, uh, talk about solutions, right? So uh, we're, we're trying to do that as a part of that collaborative. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he says, hope is like water. What, what, is, he, what is he meaning there? Well, he's trying to point out that you need to have something to believe in, right? And it's it's a biological reality. And I, he made this nice analogy where he said, you know, if you're in the restaurant business, you're going to give people water, even if it's not your main obsession, right? But that's because you understand human biology. And it's sort of weird that journalism has such a hard time understanding this. People need to have a sense of possibility. And when I say that, you know, journalists often bridle at that because, and I would have too, you know, 10 years ago, because... It feels like you're asking me to put a positive spin on the news. You're asking me to kind of create a puff piece and make things look better than they are and have rose-colored glasses. And and actually, that's the contrary. To the contrary, I actually find every story I've ever covered, no matter how horrible, and I have covered some pretty horrible stories, right, from 9-11 to Hurricane Katrina to other things, there are always glimmers of hope, right? Most of it is about widening the lens that you're looking through and looking at it from a historical perspective, looking at it from a bigger geographic perspective, that doesn't mean that you don't also document the real threats and loss and grief and despair. I mean, and, and hold the power to account, right? All those things can coexist in a story or in a news outlet, just the way they do in real life, right? Like it is hard to find a neighborhood anywhere in the world where there aren't flickers of hope in people's lives. And it's not the main story always, but, you know, maybe we shouldn't cut it out of the story. Um, so give me some examples, uh, I guess, bad and good. Yeah, I think um, one great place to go for inspiration on this is the Solutions Journalism Network's Story Tracker online, which um, you can search any subject you're interested in, you know, education, climate change, what have you. And you can find examples of stories that feature humans trying to solve problems as opposed to just the problem. And these are rigorously reported stories, right? And sometimes those attempts often, almost always, will not succeed, at least not 100%. 
And that's still interesting, you know. Um, so let's take a couple examples. Um, here's an example of one that left us, I think, with no hope, which is last year the New York Times published a big, expensive, ambitious multimedia project called Postcards from a World on Fire, which chronicled how climate change has altered life in something like 190 countries. And it led with a graphic of the Earth in flames spinning in space, right? So very dramatic image that they uh, created for this project. And the words underneath it, cities swallowed by dust, human history drowned by the sea. Okay. So <laughs> this is a well-intentioned effort to get people's attention, right? Sort of like if, if you have kids, like you're, if, you're, if your kid is like pulling on your pants, trying to get your attention and you're busy doing something else, they'll just get louder and louder under the mistaken assumption that this is going to work, right? And so I think um, this was an attempt to get people's attention in hopes that it would uh, mobilize people to fight climate change. But in fact, you know, you see that, and most people, if they, if they do click through it, just feel totally disempowered afterward. They just feel gutted. Or more often, they just don't click on it. Um, and then I want to just quickly add, by contrast, the same outlet, the New York Times, recently did a story about a different hard problem, which is homelessness. And it detailed how the city of Houston had moved 25,000 people experiencing homelessness into their own homes and the various bumps along the way, the challenges, things that didn't go right. So it was, you know, an extensively reported piece. But as you read it, you start a couple things happen, right? In my experience, you, you feel a sort of space open up in your chest, like, oh, this is not actually impossible to make progress on. And then the next thing that might happen is you might ask yourself, well, why the heck isn't my city doing these things? So in a way, that kind of hopeful story can lead to more accountability, right, um, which is sort of what a lot of journalists want. They want the powerful to be held to account. But just showing us the world on fire is actually can lead to a self-fulfilling prophecy where eventually the world's on fire because people feel helpless. Let's take another break. We'll come back and uh, and talk about the uh, the second and third ingredients uh, as a part of a solution to making the the news more human. Uh, responding to this problem, which has uh, been uh, quantified uh, by the Reuters Institute, about forty percent of Americans say they sometimes or often avoid contact with the news. That's a higher rate than at least thirty other countries. We have with us journalist and writer Amanda Ripley. Uh, her uh, Op-ed piece in the Washington Post recently was titled, I Stopped Reading the News, Is the Problem Me or the Product? We'll have more following this. Thanks for joining us for Access Utime. Tom Williams. Our guest for the hour is a writer and journalist Amanda Ripley. You can find her at amandaripley.com. Author of several books, including High Conflict. Um, and uh, she wrote an article recently in the Washington Post outlining her uh, studies on how to improve journalism, responding to a uh, problem, which uh, she originally thought maybe was only hers, and I think a lot of us do, so it's kind of cathartic to find out that uh, 40% of Americans are pulling back from the news. Of course, that's not what we want people to do, to pull, out, pull back from the news uh, entirely, so how do we improve journalism? So the second of your three ingredients, Amanda Ripley, um, I'll just read a couple of sentences from your article. Uh, humans need a sense of agency uh, 
Agency is not something most reporters think about, you say, probably because in their jobs they have it. But feeling like you and your fellow humans can do something, even small, is how we convert anger into action, frustration into invention. You want to say that self-efficacy is essential to any functioning democracy. Uh, Very true. Um, And you cite climate change as a good example here of a lack of agency in a lot of climate change reporting. Yeah, so there was a study by Media Matters for America that showed in in 2021 only a third of climate stories on nightly news and Sunday morning shows discussed any possible solutions to the problem. So that's actually a higher rate than in the past. So I guess that's progress. But, you know, two-thirds then um, are just kind of hammering you with with despair. So um, that would be an obvious one where, you know, Again, you have to do it well. I mean, I think this is the piece that sometimes gets lost. And I'm, I think it's great that you're working with the Solutions Journalism Network. And there are people who have literally spent years figuring out how to do this well. And they are definitely at the center of this because you can try to do solution stories and they come out kind of boring and bland and they feel like puff pieces. And that's a huge loss because then it will give editors an excuse to never do it again, right? Um, because it goes against some of the more ingrained subconscious values of journalism. So I think it is important to do it well. That means you have to really report it out and you have to write about solutions that didn't work. You have to write about, um, you know, what might work in the future, what might not. It doesn't mean endorsing the solutions because that's not the role of journalism, right? But it means reporting them out. Um, And it's funny because you're starting to see non-journalists kind of fill the void in a lot of these spaces. Like um, there are a bunch of viral videos on TikTok where non-journalists, like there's one named the Garbage Queen, have started to create content celebrating incremental environmental victories and debunking what they call climate doomers. Um, So that's an example. And actually, when I've been doing radio interviews about this piece that I just did, multiple callers have have called to say that they do this themselves, but they'll hear a really depressing story and then Google possible um, solutions just for their own sanity, Um, which is which is great, but also a little bit heartbreaking because. That's our job, and uh, I don't think we're doing it enough. Yeah, there's an indication of a problem if people are having to do that, right? I mean, it's good that they are doing that. but Yeah, it uh, is good, yeah, and it's easier than ever, right, to do it. But still, you know, this one this one guy was saying he, he Googled solution, you know, efforts to try to work on hard problems, and then he posts them on his Facebook page as, like, a public service to help, you know, his friends feel better. But, you know, as he said, uh, on the NPR show I was on, he's like, you know, my platform is not as big as your platform. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it would be great if we could all work on this together. Yeah, very true. So your third of the three ingredients, dignity. We need dignity. What? How do you define dignity? Dignity is the feeling that you matter, right? That your life has some worth. And this is something that I didn't really think much about, I'm embarrassed to admit, until I started writing about human behavior and conflict um, all kinds of conflict and dignity and dignity violations explain most intractable conflicts around the world, whether it's, you know, civil war or diplomatic standoffs or domestic violence, gang violence, you name it. Um, dignity is a very important way um, to explain human behavior that seems inexplicable. So what does that mean for journalists? Well, 
treating people like they matter, you know, most obviously means listening to them, right? Like asking your audience um, what matters to them and listening in ways they can see, not sort of like fake listening, but like really listening. Um, and it means sometimes it means empowering them to talk to each other with civility. Like there's an Atlanta NBC station, 11 Alive, who um, brought in local parents who were skeptical of critical race theory to interview school officials and historians on camera together. Um, so that's a way to kind of get out of the way and let people um, treat each other like humans, right, and and ask each other questions. And so that's that's actually agency and dignity in one. Um, and really the best writing, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, does leave people, even even the bad guys, right, sometimes, or the victims, with, with a little bit of dignity, right, if it's good writing. Because, in fact, humans are more than one thing. They're, they're more than uh, the sum of their circumstances. They're more than the worst decision they ever made. Um, so that's, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a, it's a complicated concept, right, dignity, but I think it's something we should talk more about, and in particular, you know, neighborhoods that have a lot of crime in the United States often feel like the coverage um, that they get it doesn't leave them with dignity because it's only it's only about the worst days, right? And it's not about all the efforts that people in that neighborhood, the same people, um, are making to try to stop the violence. So that would be another example. I want to uh, I want to quote this uh, this paragraph. Uh, you describe the news media. Uh, it's pretty stark. It's hard to generalize, you say, about the news media. <clears throat> the category includes hardworking beat reporters, dedicated fact-checkers and producers, as well as shameless propagandists, dupes, and conflict entrepreneurs. It's almost too big a category to talk about with any clarity. But it's fair to say that if news sites were people, most would be diagnosed as clinically depressed right now, which is uh, kind of sad. Not only, you know, some of the populace, but the news media themselves. Um, you go on to say changing that might require journalists to accept that some of their own core beliefs are outdated. For example, um, the journalist theory of change is the best way to avert catastrophes to keep people focused on the potential for catastrophe 24-7. You're quoting um, Mr. Bornstein again. Uh, that used to work, kind of, you say. Yeah, so I think this is key. And, and David Bornstein articulated it in a way that I had not, which is, you know, underneath that New York Times special we talked about, about climate change and the earth on fire, is a belief, a theory of change, which is the best way to avert catastrophe is to keep people focused on the potential for catastrophe 24-7, as David said. And that's not working, right? So, in fact, what's happening is more and more people are just tuning you out or finding other news sources that, you know, quote-unquote news sources that are actually peddling lies because they feel better. Um, so that's a terrible theory of change, it turns out, that just doesn't hold up. And so he suggests a better theory of change might be something like, you know, the world will get better when people understand problems and threats and challenges and what their best options are to make progress. Um, and, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean they individually are expected to fix all these big problems, right? Humans can experience vicarious agency just by learning about another country um, that lowered gun violence or another county that um, lowered the high school dropout rate, you know, with, within their own state. So those stories are ways of helping people 
you know, make the world better by highlighting the potential for change, which is something that we just don't get a lot of. And then you start to feel like, well, why bother? Um, so you do ask the question. I had this in my mind as well. Uh, what about the business model? Uh, you know, it seems like negativity does sell. Uh, how do you overcome that? Yeah, I mean, I would say that um, there's some truth to that, but not nearly as much as a lot of journalists assume. I mean, I think, look, yes, it is easier and in a way uh, lazier, I would say, to just give people outrage and fear and doom. Um, but if you want to have a longer-term relationship with your community, especially at the local level, that's not going to work over time. Like, soon you'll find you're just talking to other journalists and, like, hardcore activists, right? Um, so so I think that part of the problem is that not enough places have really tried to do this at scale in a way that um, that is truly compelling. So, you know, if it's an afterthought, if it's something that you're sort of least talented, least experienced um, journalists are doing in your newsroom, if it doesn't have the support of the leadership, it's not going to be good. But, you know, conversely, if you look at um, what goes viral online, it's often things that are hopeful, that are surprising, that are mysterious, right? It's not all doom and gloom. So I think that's kind of a, you know, a narrow way of thinking that journalists have kind of hid behind for a long time, but, but not all of them. So I just want to just quickly note uh, the Christian Science Monitor is an outlet that I have only recently begun subscribing to, and they have been for a very long time systematically, I think, creating news for humans, which, um, and you can actually feel it when you're reading it. I mean, they still cover really hard problems all around the world, um, you know, war, sickness, famine, but right alongside that is hope and agency and dignity. And just as a quick example, every story, you can't turn a story in if you work there until you filled out a field in the content management system that asks you to explain why we wrote this story. And so every, for the reader, every story has this little brief explainer called why we wrote this. So this is a way in which you're you're treating your readers um, with dignity, like they're they deserve an explanation. Why are we doing this story when so many other people have done it? Or why are we doing this story in this way? Um, and, you know, I think it's worth noting that that's something that is kind of deep in the DNA of the Christian Science Monitors. They've been around since 1908, and the paper's founder, Mary Baker Eddy, said its goal would be to injure no man but to bless all mankind. So it's a, it was a radical experiment then, and it continues to be, but they're still around. So I don't think it's easy, but it hasn't been easy for any paper, um, and it is possible to do this. Yeah, that is very helpful. I'll, I'll uh, have to. I, I've you know I've read the Christian Science Monitor, but it's been a, it's been a while. I'll check it out. Um, you uh, you say at the end of this article, I'll just quote this again. Have you talk about this? I spent four hours at an anti-abortion rally with a camera crew, and did something I'd never done before. I just tried to understand deeply what people told me. I didn't try to extract the most chilling quote or the vivid, ironic anecdote. I just asked deeper questions without judgment. It felt less transactional, more human. I also felt more informed. Uh, so this is affecting your journalism, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to walk the walk, right, not just criticize. So uh, I've been experimenting with all kinds of new ways to cover 
divisive issues, right, which is the core tenet of journalism. And sometimes things work, sometimes they don't. That's part of it. Um, but in that experience, uh, you know, I went into it really, truly trying to understand, and it was very liberating. You know, I didn't have an angle. I didn't have a narrative in my head. I, and uh, Now I have the luxury of doing that, right? I'm not writing for a daily paper. So I realized that. But I will say I, I found it much more fulfilling than the traditional way I would approach a story like that, even though, you know, it's not like I changed my mind on the subject. It's not like I changed anyone else's mind, right? Um, but it's like I understood better all the many, 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 many different reasons that people were out there protesting. Um, and that was helpful. It was like I learned something, if that makes sense. And it's the same with, you know, we, um, I now train with my colleague, Helen Bianduti-Hofer, who's also a journalist. We've trained hundreds of journalists and other people in how to um, understand conflict better so that they become curious and not just threatened. And it's, it's an incredibly, it's actually the most exciting work I do is, is this work where I'm kind of getting out of normal, traditional journalism and trying to do it differently. And it's also a little scary, which probably means, you know, that we're doing it right. Well, we'll leave it there uh, out of uh, time. Uh, it's a very interesting conversation uh, and, and hopeful that these things are, are happening. We've been talking to writer and journalist Amanda Ripley uh, about her recent op-ed piece in the Washington Post. I'll mention that she has books out, including High Conflict, The Smartest Kids in the World, and The Unthinkable. And she hosts a Slate podcast called How To. You can find her at her website, AmandaRipley.com. Amanda Ripley, a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Take care. Take care. And thanks, everyone. We'll go out as we do on Thursdays with Leo T. and Skywatcher. It's many cultures, one sky. Skywatcher Leo T here, looking up in the night sky after a beautiful day of blue clouds and clouds streaked across the sky. Let's take a wild look for the northern coal sack. It's named for the more famous coal sack, a naked eye dark nebula, next to the Southern Cross in the Southern Hemisphere. The northern version is a subtler dark nebula in the beautiful Cygnus of Swan. You'll need a moonless night, like the evenings this week, and a fine dark sky in which the Milky Way stands out in detail. So you'll need to be out in the Uintas or on the Colorado Plateau. Face east after dark and look very high, almost overhead. The brightest star there is Vega, just dazzling up there. Look to the lower left of Vega, and there's Deneb, the big bright star of Cygnus. To Deneb's right, along the outstretched neck of Cygnus, the stick figure swan, is the Cygnus star cloud. One of the brightest stretches of the Milky Way, and it just sits there and glows for you. You're in the magic now. The darkest part of that gap is the northern coal sack. Deneb shines right on its edge. If you even try to find this, you're achieving space travel beyond time. And a little closer, NASA's Perseverance Mars rover is scouting for landing sites that could be one day used for a spacecraft that will fly the rover's Martian rock samples back to Earth. NASA's Perseverance rover is scouting for landing sites that could one day be used for spacecraft to do just that. As we've been reporting, Perseverance is exploring Mars's Jezero crater since it landed in 2021, collecting samples of Martian rocks and soil in a search for signs of ancient life on the Red Planet. Then at some point, there will be two lander missions sent to Mars to collect Perseverance's samples and launch them up to an orbiting spacecraft, which will haul them back to Earth. It's a complicated maneuver planned in conjunction with the European Space Agency for a 2028 launch and a return to Earth in 2033. And let's take the seldom-used Biggs Little Skywatcher spaceship out, way out, and look at the inner solar system as it spins down there seems to spin much slower than previous science believes it should. 
The inner solar system spins in a direction and unknown origin. More slowly than the known laws of modern physics predict, a thin disk of gas and dust, known as the accretion disk, spirals around young stars. These disks where planets form contain leftover star-forming material that is a fraction of the star's mass. According to the law of conservation of angular momentum, the inner part of the disk should spin faster as the material spirals slowly inward toward the star. Makes sense, doesn't it? But observations have shown that the inner solar system, the region of the solar system that extends from the sun to the asteroid belt and includes our planets, does not spin as fast as predicted by the law of angular momentum. Using new simulations of a virtual accretion disk, scientists at Caltech have demonstrated how particles in the accretion disk interact and for some reason, unknown, the inner part of the old solar system just doesn't crank around as fast as it seems it should. And now here's some interesting science for you. Angular momentum is proportional to velocity times radius, and the law of angular momentum conservation states that the angular momentum in a system stays constant. Hmm, another mystery of the universe we may never know the answer to. We'll see. And on July 22, 1972, the Venera 8 spacecraft landed on Venus. The Soviet space probe Venera 8 was the second spacecraft to successfully execute a soft landing on the planet's surface. Venera 8 spent 117 days traveling to Venus only to survive for 50 minutes before the planet's harsh atmosphere got the best of its hardware. But it did manage to accomplish plenty of science before dying on Venus. During its descent, it collected and transmitted data about the atmosphere. And speaking of the Soviet Union, oh, uh, I mean Russia, yes, I know they are leaving the space program. Uh, they helped build as their dictator throws a fit because everyone else objects to the unjust killing of innocent people and the conquest and invasion of Ukraine. Let's go watch our Leo T. It's many cultures, one sky. Let's take the trip to Africa and visit the people there, the largest ethnic group in South Africa, with an estimated 10 million people living mainly in the province of KwaZulu-Natal. It's the Zulu. In Zulu star lore, the stars are known as Aiselamila, and believe these stars die in winter as they sink below the western horizon, not to be seen for many months. And when the rainy season starts in late spring, they are reborn as they reappear in the east. What do they believe happens in the summer? They come out and burn brightly and dance around the center of the galaxy. So let's join the Zulu and dance around the center of the galaxy as we look up, look around, and get a little bit lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T on UPR with translator stations statewide and streaming live.